It's Thursday, June 24th, 2021, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavroidis, a senior writer at the Hoover Institution. We are doing something a little bit different today. I am sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. As our audience well knows, Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits, edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers, a new edition of which will be coming out in a few days. Whalen is joined by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Jonathan, Lee. Jonathan, Bill, good to see you guys. So let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, in, in Politico's California playbook earlier this week, Carla Marinucci and Jeremy White wrote that because, quote, California Governor Gavin Newsom is looking comfortable in the polls and California's economy is resurging, momentum has since shifted to the idea of an early vote unquote, possibly in August or, or September. Uh, would you put your money on an early vote benefiting the governor? Uh, why don't we start with you, Bill? Uh, I would. Um, so a little background here for the, for the listeners who may not be uh, uh, privy to the nuances of what's going on here. Um, California has a recall process. The recall is driven by the ability to collect enough signatures to trigger said recall. Um, the collectors did just that. They collected 1.7 million signatures. We just went through a 30-day period where voters were given the option of taking away their signatures that they wanted to. Uh, of the 1.7 million collected, uh, a grand total of 43 people apparently changed their minds. So kind of a waste of time. The next step in the process is now the counties have to decide how much it costs to stage the election, as does the state government. They then get into a back and forth Hoover pays for it. And then it goes to the lieutenant governor who decides when to stage it. And I, I don't mean to filibuster here, but uh, when the lieutenant governor, Eleni Kunalakis, decides when to do this, she could do it as soon as 60 days after she makes the announcement or 80 days. Um, as we are now uh, in the uh, approaching the closing days of June, uh, simple math dictates it'll be very hard to do this in August. If I had to finger a date for you, I'd probably say mid September would be uh, the time to look. Um, but you asked, uh, is sooner beneficial to the governor? The answer is yes, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, things have trended well his way in terms of the infection rate in California, in terms of California now reopening on June the 15th. Uh, he has more money imaginable uh, and imaginable to spend right now through uh, budget and uh, the windfall of revenue. Um, and he hasn't done anything stupid like go to the French laundry. So he would like to get this out of the way before something goes wrong. As Lee can probably explain, um, there are cautionary problems for Newsom here. One is we are in fire season, and I'm looking out my window at an incredibly dry California. It looks like just literally it looks like tinder out there. It's brown, it's dry, and a fire could happen. And if a fire breaks out, it's on the governor's watch, and the governor has to respond to be a manager. And the other thing, and I, I welcome Lee's thoughts on this as well, because he just wrote a very good column for Eureka on this, uh, is school reopenings. Schools in California reopen on August the 15th, which would be about a month before recall, if I have the math right. Uh, and we don't know what reopening is going to look like in California, Jonathan and Lee. Uh, most parents are probably thinking it's going to be back to the traditional model of five days a week. Uh, your kid goes in the morning, comes home in the afternoon. So for those less fortunate, it amounts to daycare. 
Um, teacher juniors might have a different idea of what reopening is. So it might be a couple of days a week for your kid. There might be some sort of lottery or maybe your kid goes to school. Maybe your kid stays at home on Zoom. Uh, Zoom school is just not a winning proposition. Um, so that's why Newsom wants to do this sooner rather than later. The longer it takes, just the more chance something could go wrong for him. Did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, Jonathan, I agree with um, what a lot of Bill said. There's, there's, I think there's different winds blowing within California um, that make it somewhat uncertain about, you know, the best timing for Newsom. Bill's absolutely right that um, <laughs> that for a governor who's who has uh, who has stumbled in a number of ways, in my opinion. Having a shorter track record is better than a longer track record. And it's hard to know how school reopenings will go. He will, you know, that's going to happen on his watch. Uh, and I don't think he wants to I think he does want to get the election done before an awful lot of that. You know, if that goes south, it probably a little bit of it will. <clears throat> he doesn't really want to have to deal with that. The fire stuff is incredibly important. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Bill just mentioned that Gavin hasn't had a misstep such as um, such as the French Laundry uh, or trying to sympathize with parents who are doing Zoom school when his kids have both been, been in traditional school because they go to private schools. Um, although Gavin did a, a little bit of a mini misstep um, earlier this week when he spoke about how many fire bricks have been newly constructed. And the number he gave was about nine times bigger than the number that actually have been, uh, than the number of fire bricks that have actually been constructed. And the California fire chief actually knew that the numbers he was reporting uh, were in error. And, and not just a little bit in error, what Gavin reported was nine times in error. So we're in a drought situation where, you know, I mean, I hope we don't have a lot of fires, uh, but, you know, it's California, it's a drought. There's a lot of fuel out there is going to happen. Um, what I suspect is going to be more difficult for Newsom to deal with is that it, I think to a lot of people it's becoming more clear that, that he's a governor that even without the pandemic, that they're just not getting in him what they thought they were going to get. In the first in, in, in his first year of, of being governor, uh, which was without the pandemic, you know, his number one proposal was to build housing. Um, well, housing starts um, were 80% below his target among the lowest, among the lowest ever. Um, you've got a San Francisco supervisor, Democrat, um, the, the city where he was former mayor, um, talking about Newsom spewing BS and, Newsom is a perfect example of why people are fed up with politicians um, that don't do anything except go on PR campaigns. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get into this stuff more over the hour, but, um, but even if Newsom prevails this fall, he's, in my opinion, he's going to have a lot of challenges coming up in 2022 when the regularly scheduled election occurs. And that sort of goes into my next question. Um, assuming everything goes well for him, um, as he's on a, on on uh, what uh, you know the San Francisco mayor accused of, of him of doing in being on a PR campaign, he's barnstorming across the state and um, 
Carlo Marinucci actually painted a picture this way, um, quote, in his latest fist bumping lap around the state, Newsom hit the front seat of the new revolution roller coaster at Six Flags Magic Mountain, hands in the air, relishing the stomach churning jaunt. While this is a special election, does it ultimately serve as a vote of confidence campaign for the governor, enabling him to sideline his comp competition for the 22 re-election campaign? Um, Lee, you said he had some challenges coming up, but is this does this re-election campaign, uh, does this recall campaign ultimately serve as a vote of confidence and help uh, propel him into 2022? The, the fact that he's been recalled, and, and um, you know, Bill can correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is just the second time a California governor has been recalled. The first course was Gray Davis back around 03 in which he lost um, to Schwarzenegger. And it was over a major policy misstep that Davis was blamed for, which had to do with state energy and electricity. Now we have Gavin presiding over California during COVID. And the challenges I referred to include the worst relative economic performance in the country. Um, California had the highest unemployment rate during COVID, uh, except for Hawaii and Nevada. And both of those states, of course, you know, depend so much on tourism for their economy. So outside of those states, California was the absolute worst in terms of economic performance. Nearly everyone across parties complained about the lack of clarity in terms of rules, uh, the amount of arbitrariness that was being imposed. Very few people understood what the different categories were. Very few people understood whether their businesses, you know, what, when, they, when they would be able to open and under what circumstances. And despite the worst economic performance outside of Nevada and Hawaii, California's COVID experience was right about the middle of the pack. So it is not as if California avoided the COVID catastrophes that other states had by doing what appears to be very, very onerous shutdowns. They were about as good as, they, they were about uh, uh, average, um, right about the same as Florida, which was, what, which was much more open, which had much less of an economic hardship. And then at the same time, you have Gavin, you know, a, during a time when when the state's employment department was busy paying out hundreds of millions in fraudulent claims to people, including <laughs> convicted murderers and people masquerading as Diane Feinstein and people masquerading as a one-year-old and an, as a 120-year-old man. Meanwhile, uh, legitimate unemployed people, their benefits are being held up for months. Um, when news about that broke, Gavin, Gavin held a presser, and the point of that presser was to say that by well by 20, he issued an executive order saying that well by 2035, we're not going to have gasoline, fossil fuel powered cars anymore. So Gavin's playing in the clouds, looking out 15 years at a topic that is very far down the radar list for most Californians many of whom are just really struggling trying to keep afloat during COVID. Um, he's not fixing the employment department. He's signing destructive bills such as AB5, which outlaws the ability for a person to work as an independent contractor outside of the state's Democratic Party legislative branch and outside of unions. Nobody likes that bill. Um, so even if Gavin does 
cruise by through this recall and there's just no two ways around it. And I'd love to hear Bill's perspective and politics about this. It just seems like a recall is a complete embarrassment for him. That really is, uh, he's painting it uh, as racism, a white supremacy. Um, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with how the state's being governed. And about you know, close to 2 million people have said, we don't approve of what you're doing so strongly that they're willing to sign a recall statement as Bill noted, out of 1.72 million signatures, only 43 were, were, uh, were withdrawn. Yeah, you know, Lee raises an interesting point there. There, you know, one of two ways to look at the recall, either Newsom can try to completely dismiss it uh, as a partisan exercise as he, as he does almost every day. He rarely misses a chance to call it a Republican recall or to somehow drag Donald Trump into it or, uh, I've noticed he now pointed out uh, Mike Huckabee, I think, gave money to some effort or something like that. So it's always about, you know, them versus us. Uh, but the other way to look at this is that a recall is kind of like having a heart attack or a life-threatening, you know, moment in your life. Because the fact is that, you know, there is a gun pointed at him. And that gun is very simply a, a recall election, which is a two-part ballot. One part is candidates, but the other part of the ballot is question number one. Do you choose to recall the governor? Yes or no? So that's a vote on Gavin Newsom versus Gavin Newsom. Uh, now, to his credit, to the extent there's an MVP in the world of Gavin Newsom, it's whoever told the governor to stop doing these awful midday press conferences in Sacramento, where you're just in complete, you know, bureaucratic speak and just kind of talking and glossing over things and using figures that people don't understand and just completely, you know, adding, adding, you know, um, discomfort to an already uncomfortable situation. Instead, what you've noticed, and Carla referenced this in her story, he's out and about, he's going to places, he's showing progress, he's uh, trying to take part in the celebration of the reopening. I think it's overly exuberant, um, by the way, and it kind of looks more like a game show host than he does a governor at times. I don't think it's a good look on a governor personally. Um, but here's the question. The question is, will he be a changed man having gone through this? I, my concern for California is this. Uh, this is a governor who, like all politicians, he has a considerable ego. He is very vain, uh, bordering on cocky. Uh, he's never really kind of had a threatening situation in his political career. It's been a pretty easy glide from city supervisor in San Francisco to mayor to Lieutenant Governor to Governor, it's being the jet stream. It's like Kamala Harris's career is very much the same way. And not a coincidence, by the way. I think you see her struggling now just to deal with issues like immigration and uh, voting bills in Congress. There's not a lot of there there to Kamala, I think. Um, so the question is, will Gavin be anything of a changed man, assuming he survives the recall? Uh, you asked a couple minutes ago about, about Newsom and, uh, and about survivability. And it's interesting, if you look at his ads that he has up right now, he's, he's done a big buy with one ad, and the ad is like a re-election commercial. It's showing what he is doing. But it's interesting, and, and Lee, I don't know if you noticed this as well. Uh, in terms of progress, uh, he cites uh, dealing with 65,000 people on homelessness, but that's not quite accurate. This is a proposal. It actually is not the law yet. It's part of spending money to take 65,000 people and put them into, into housing, but it hasn't happened yet. Otherwise, it's a recitation of spending money. Left and right, just I'm giving you money for this, I'm giving you money for that, which he can do now because uh, the good times are rolling in Sacramento. But this is the question moving forward out of the recall into next year when he has to stand up in front of the legislature and give a state of the state. What does he get into? Uh, Lee mentioned housing, for example. If you look at that commercial, notice at the end who pays for the ad and who are major contributors. One is Reed Hastings um, of Netflix fame, the CEO of Netflix, who gave Newsom $3 million. 
Uh, I assume Hastings is doing this because he is a charter school advocate and he wants a seat at the table uh, come the time when the unions take their next run at charter schools. So I think that's kind of his down payment for getting access to that conversation. But you also notice that a California housing interest is also involved in this. They're looking for grand things out of the governor. But outside of that, what is the governor doing about crime in California? Uh, what is he doing about homelessness? What is he doing about things like critical race theory? And, you know, this gets back to the question of how the media want to cover this. I was talking to a reporter the other day and um, she was asking me about Kevin Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego, who's uh, we presume is going to be a recall candidate. And Faulkner is at all times putting forward very, I don't work for him, I'm not flacking for him here, but Faulkner is at all times putting forward very thoughtful, very, really very well thought out policy ideas. My former boss, Pete Wilson, former governor of California, uh, praised one of them just saying, what do we think about this? Um, but the guy can't get covered to save his life. And why is that? Well, he's not writing, you know, he's not writing the teacups at Disneyland. Uh, he's not doing what John Cox did, uh, who's also in this race. Uh, he showed up with a bear one day. I kid you not, a thousand pound bear, because why? It's like cracked reporters will cover it. And he's not Caitlyn Jenner, who's just who gets six percent of the uh, of the uh, vote in the polls, but gets about ninety five percent of the coverage. It seems so. Uh, this is a frustrating. I have frustration I have ongoing with journalism in California. They just don't want to cover the substance of what's going on here. They just want to cover the flash and. Uh, you know, I guess welcome to California in that regard. But again, this is the overriding question, I think, if indeed we think that Newsom survives the recall process. Is he really a changed man? You know, one man will have a heart attack and then he'll, you know, change his diet and lay off of salty foods and live better. And the other man will think, well, I've cheated death once. I'll continue to cheat death. And I'm just afraid this governor will continue to want to cheat death. Uh, you had mentioned his, um, you know, riding high with his $75.5 billion surplus. Yeah. Um, he also has an additional 2.6 billion of COVID relief funds looking to uh, resuscitate um, his governorship. Right. Um, but if you're looking the long term, uh, the state's state legislature's budget analyst Gabe Pettick worries that the governor's lavish spending might cripple the state's ability to balance the budget once the revenue once the revenue bubble bursts and revenue dries up. Yeah. Given the exodus of some people and firms in the Golden State, is this a legitimate uh, worry despite, despite the fact that he's sitting on so much money? Well, yeah, and I'm going to say a few things, and I'm going to pass it on to my uh, friend, the distinguished economist. But uh, you look at the California economy right now, and it is sort of like that act where the uh, person is trying to spin about five plates at the same time on top of uh, on tops of poles, and and the spinning plates in terms of Californian revenue or capital gains, and uh, and what the upper one percent of Californians pay in taxes is phenomenal. What a very small sliver of uh, of Californians pay in taxes to the state, and what's driving this. By the way, you mentioned seventy five billion dollars in surplus. That is. It's complicated. It's kind of illusory uh, because uh, of that $75 billion, uh, about half of that he has mandated uh, to put into education under Proposition 98, but also into a rainy day fund under Proposition 2 that Jerry Brown got passed. So he's really only playing with $38 billion now. I wish I had $38 billion to play with as well, but so he's spending that. But no, he is, he is in the process of setting up California for another fall because why? Um, California's budgets are like the weather. Some years it rains and life is good. And some years like it is right now, it is dry and things are very bad. And uh, every governor confronts this. Um, they either walk into a bad situation or they leave in a bad situation. Uh, Newsom walked into a good situation and he is not... Uh, uh, Pandemic put him briefly into a bad situation, but pandemic turned out not to be so bad. Now he's flush again, but 
he's not thinking three, four years down the road. He's just coming up with ways to spend the money. Now, the question is really, how is it going to make for a better California with the money he is spending? Uh, uh, there's a piece of the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, it really kind of nails the situation very well. It talks about how progressives govern in this world. And it said, here's the basic problem. Progressives kind of govern the, you know, to the lyrics of somewhere over the rainbow. And it just, they just want kind of a dream fantasy world where everything is going to be wonderful and perfect. It doesn't work that way. And that's um, that's Gavin Newsom's California in a nutshell in terms of, you know, zero emission vehicles and all sorts of wonderful things he's going to do to the state. I'm afraid he doesn't deal with reality, but Lee could kind of better speak to the economics. But, yeah, you know, I worked with the governor for you know five years and we went through boom and bust as well. And uh, Newsom is very happy with the boom right now. And I don't think he's that concerned about the bust. Bill made some great points. Um, and it this this worries me really for two reasons, one of which is because. You know, Gavin's throwing out candy to everyone and everywhere, and it's it's not fiscally responsible. Um, I believe the uh, uh, Bill, 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 you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the Legislative Analyst Office, which is the nonpartisan, the nonpartisan group of people who who look at budgets and evaluate the California's economy and our ability to pay for stuff at the state level. Um, I've never seen them be more critical than what they said about Newsom spending plans. Um, they were incredible. I don't, I don't recall the exact, the exact language they used, but they, I believe they called it irresponsible and short-sighted um, right. just as Bill noted. And, and, uh, and this is, this is just an enormous problem and you can't help but think that Gavin is trying to buy his way back uh, into the graces of people. And when I look at his, uh, I mean, when I look at his governorship and, and, and more so in terms of what Bill said a moment ago about, you know, is he going to be a change man? Is he going to be that guy who had a heart attack, who, uh, again, speaking uh, proverbially, you know, lose 80 pounds, go on a, go on a diet um, and exercise? Or is he going to be the guy who pops an extra Lipitor pill and really just makes a few changes around the margins? And, and I think it, I think he will be the latter. And, and I, I think the reason for that is that um, he's not a governor in the sense of being a person who can lead. I, that's my that's my impression. I don't see the Democratic Party solidly behind him. They're behind him, of course, because they have to be. But I don't see the love for Gavin within the party. Um, someone who is a better leader wouldn't have to have essentially shut out really almost everyone except for a small group of advisors on the number of executive orders he was he was issuing and on when the when the state was going to open up democratic legislators uh were as upset with him for this lack of clarity and their lack of input as were republicans uh i don't see him as a leader um i agree entirely with bill that he just kind of skated smoothly in to sacramento after being appointed by willie brand to be um i believe he was uh uh, supervisor of the uh, or, or head of the parking council in San Francisco and then city supervisor. Mm -hmm. And then he was greased in to being mayor of San Francisco, which probably is the uh, the worst run city in the country. 
He then was lieutenant governor, and now he finds himself in the governor's seat. And uh, and like Kamala Harris, uh, sort of thinking, what do I do now? I'm not really ready for this, and I don't think he ever would be. Um, well, Lee, he did he did promise to end homelessness as uh, mayor. Lee, now he's promising to end it as governor. But uh, Lee raises an interesting point here uh, in terms of the how the recall plays out in this regard. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, who's a Democrat, uh, it falls to her to call the election. Now, if she calls it um, 60 days uh, from the day she makes the announcement, uh, under California law, you can uh, file for as a recall candidate 59 days out. So that gives everybody one day to decide if they're in or not. Now, there are a handful of Republicans who we assume are in and they've already decided, but it's the Democratic side of the question that sticks out. Uh, you want a Democrat to run. There's nothing about Newsom here. Uh, but if you're a Democrat, you want a Democrat on that side of the ballot for one simple reason, and that's insurance. Uh, because as I mentioned, the first part of the ballot is Newsom versus Newsom. Do you choose to recall the governor? Yes or no? A disaster for the Democratic Party would be that somehow Newsom loses on that first question. You then go to part B of the ballot, and now you're looking at you know four, five, six Republicans and no Democrat. You put one Democrat on that side, and that Democrat probably gets the most votes. And it'd be very easy for a Democrat to run. They could say, I love Governor Newsom. I, I wish only the best for Governor Newsom. I'm only doing this for the good of my party. You could probably uh, say that there's a cynical side to this. That Democrat would be putting him or or herself up for maybe a statewide run through the recognition of it. Um, But there's a question whether or not a Democrat is going to be on on the ballot or not um, in this recall as well. But yeah, it's um, it really is a question of how Newsom is going to approach life after the recall again, assuming that he uh, survives. And I just my fear for California is that he is going to take this the wrong way, that he'll Say, well, the recall is put forward by a bunch of right-wing crackpots, and if you look at the if you look at the recall initiative itself, the um, the uh, petition, it has nothing to do with COVID. It is about a lot of conservative grievances, guns, and so forth. Uh, it'll say, you know what? I've just kind of you know you know dismissed those people. I blew them off. I'm bulletproof now, and so look out. And you know, I think those are upper words for California. Look out. But you know, Lee, it is a question here moving forward, though. Um, there's nothing stopping Gavin Newsom from engaging in tax reform, for example. Uh, I worked for the last California governor who did tax reform. This was 25 years almost in the rearview mirror now. Uh, you would think it'd be very easy for Newsom to put together a group to look at it, or he could just dust off the, the Parsky Commission report that our colleagues uh, John Kogan and Mike Boskin worked on back for Arnold. Um but you would think that the responsible thing for him to do would be to look at the look at this revenue stream, and again try to figure out a way to get us out of being so just you know so victimized by the boom and bust nature of our economy. Yeah, Bill, you'd think so. You would think that a responsible, forward looking, <laughs> forward looking person would be doing that. Um, and I don't think I don't as much as I would like to see that happen. I don't think that will happen. You know, uh, we both read, uh, we both read the economic recovery report from his uh, recover California commission about the idea being that this was a group of experts, uh, including Bob Iger uh, of Disney, um, who left, <laughs> who left the group, and then um, a lot of other folks, including people, a lot of people from labor unions, uh, a lot of people in the Democratic Party. Um, and you know, we looked at that report, both you and I, and we compared it to the report that was done uh, for Schwarzenegger. 
And uh, it is just night and day difference um, to the point where what Newsom commissioned, the report was a complete fluff piece. There was not one recommendation that appeared to be whatsoever sensible other than bringing broadband to areas of rural California, which of course is a good idea, but which of course has been around for years. There's nothing new about that. It's just a matter of finding the money for it. And that investment should have been made years ago. And there was no other recommendations. The report was simply lauding the leadership of Gavin Newsom. And Bill, you know, the more we get into his governorship, I can't help but think about this as being a monarchy. And, and every once in a while, you get you get a, every once in a while you get lucky, and you get a uh, you get a good a good leader. Uh, and a lot of the times, um, you're not so lucky. And the person that goes to the throne through the portals of the Democratic Party, the chosen one, um, isn't very effective. And I yeah, think we're operating with yeah. the latter. It's a cautionary tale of one party rule. And I think another dynamic to look at at California come the fall and next year. And again, this is assuming Newsom survives the recall. It's the pressure to do even more in this regard. If you look back at Washington right now, where Democrats have the presidency, they have uh, control of the House of Representatives, but not by a very large, large margin, five seats, I think. And while they have nominal control of the United States Senate, uh, the fact is they can't get anything done because it's a 50-50 split and they can't keep all Democrats on board. So there's a lot of frustration brewing in D.C. against the Biden presidency and the idea we have all of this power, but we don't do anything. Yet. We want to go big, but we can't go big. And I just think maybe, uh, Lee and Jonathan, that that somehow ricochets back to California in an odd way. And Newsom sees that as an opportunity to be even more progressive, to be even more bold, to be even more dynamic as he would see it and thus make him more of a national player. And so the question becomes, where else do they go um, in terms of progressive ideals? Well, look at the people who are paying money for the recall. Look at what the teachers unions are pouring into it, for example, uh, but also look at the legislature. And one thing which I look at, Lee, in particular is, and I just did a podcast with this with our colleague Dave Henderson the other day. Um, Dave written about this. It's the assault on wealth in California. There is at all times a wealthy group of people to go after. And Lee, you might remember, I think it was two years ago, the legislature uh, started going down the road of a wealth tax in California. Didn't go anywhere. It didn't get uh, through committee or anything, but lawmakers were talking about it. And my goodness, if you want to talk about an insidious plan, this was it. The idea was you're going to tax Californians on their wealth. Uh, not just their California wealth, but their global wealth. So if Leo Ohadian uh, has money parked around the world, we're going to assess every dollar that Leo Ohadian has in his possession. We're going to tax him accordingly. And we're going to tax him based upon his residency in California. If he's been a resident in California for 10 years, he's going to pay the full freight on this. And I think it kicked in at $30 million and got higher when you got over $50 million. And if Leo Hanian decides I'm going to get out of California to avoid this, uh-uh. If Leo Hanian goes to Texas, well, he's been a Californian for nine of the last 10 years now. He'll pay 90% of this tax rate and so on and so forth. Now, Lee, I think there'll be a very interesting court case. What's this thing to pass? I, I think a judge would look at this and would have to really weigh the question of whether or not it's constitutional to pay, to pay a wealth tax in a state in which you're no longer a member. But I think you're going to see more of this kind of ambition coming out of the legislature. And I think Newsom, again, maybe with stars in his eyes, having survived the recall, again, not, to, not to get too far over my skis here, but also maybe looking at the big picture for the Democratic Party. Joe Biden maybe not running for re-election in 2024. Kamala Harris looks kind of rather shaky, given her handling of the, of the, uh, the border crisis. And 
other missteps she's had as vice president, he might just get back into the same mode he was in 2019, where he saw himself as the next big thing in democratic politics. And again, my concern is for the state. Uh, he is not Jerry Brown, who famously said paddle left and paddle right. In other words, just, you know, take the canoe down the middle of the stream. This governor paddles hard in one direction, and that's left. The governor paddles hard in one direction, which is left and and with blinders on. Um Brown, um, interesting political animal, Bill, you, 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 you know him much better than I do, but at least Brown, depending upon the day of the week, um, he had some sensible economic ideas such as pension reform, which, we, which he implemented modestly, but nevertheless, he made it clear that California pensions were unsustainable. You don't see that anywhere in the Raider with Gavin. Um, Brand also made it clear, uh, again, depending on the day of the week, that um, housing was so expensive and so scarce in California, in part because of the abuse of the California Environmental Quality Act, which allows anyone to bring a lawsuit against a development. Um, the, the, uh, the be- I should say the best, the worst abuse that I've seen in this um, was in a planned community um, near Valencia, California. Uh, plans were issued in 1994 for a 60,000 person planned, planned community. Um, and, and for those who aren't familiar with Southern California, that's you know about 40 miles outside of Los Angeles. So something like a, something like a bedroom community, right. perhaps not quite. Uh, and the last lawsuit was dropped uh, finally in 2000 and 17. So 23 years to go through a permit process review, costing tens of millions of dollars. And the dropping of the last lawsuit is when the developer agreed to put in 20,000 solar charging ports. Uh, Now, this is for a city that will have probably about 25 or 30,000 cars. Um, Bill, you you know as well as I that less than one percent of cars in this state <clears throat> are electric cars, right. and so somehow magically this planned community is going to have twenty thousand electric charging ports, about nineteen thousand five hundred, which will just sit there and depreciate. Um, Brown understood that CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act, um, was being abused and. Uh, you never see one word from Gavin about this. And this really goes back to the points we were talking about in terms of leadership. Um, he talks about great education and making housing affordable and fixing homelessness and fixing climate change. And not only does nothing get done, but there's not a feasible plan in place um, for any of this. So I suspect that if he, uh, and and I should say that um, in terms of Republican challengers, I've been uh, informally advising um, both Kevin Faulkner and Caitlyn Jenner. And um, I, I haven't talked to Newsom about any policies, but in the times I've spent with both Faulkner and Jenner, um, they both have really good economic sense, both understand what the issues are, and actually both understand that housing, housing reforms need to start with sequel reforms. Uh, there needs to be tax reform. There needs to be regulatory reform. 
they have a pretty sober idea of what's going on in California and what it takes to make it more affordable and where there'll be more jobs created. Um, you just don't see that from Gavin whatsoever. Um, so I think we're just going to keep getting, yeah, this, this far left big push for more and more and more. Uh, and Gavin, as Bill, Bill, as you know, he's got $38 billion to begin doing that. Yeah, interesting. And uh, by the way, if you someone to do something very out of character, Lee, um, let me throw this idea at you. Uh, as we look at EVs, electrical vehicles, and we look at infrastructure in California and how to pay for all this kind of stuff, you know, the governor wants to drive people, no pun intended, into electric vehicles. And I think he's a Tesla owner himself. Uh, but one thing about uh, driving a Tesla is you don't put gasoline in your car. Therefore, since you don't put gasoline in your car, you're not contributing to the state gasoline tax, which in theory, the proceeds of which go to highway repair and highway construction. So maybe Newsom wants to consider a separate tax on people who drive electric vehicles to make up for uh, basically the gas tax they're not paying. I, I just, I'd be very interested to see if he would consider that, A, and B, if he would have the temerity to do that, because of course it would upset Tesla drivers. But then again, Lee, what political coalition would Tesla drivers be in California? Yeah, uh, Bill, that that political coalition would be um, people who tend to make household income over 150000 a year, um, certainly among the top 5% in wealth. Um, most of them, I, was, I would suspect, would be Democrats, um, you know, kind of the group that, that the Mark Zuckerberg Democrats uh, would be that uh, would be that crowd. Um, so you're absolutely right. Gas tax comes from a purchase of gasoline. Uh, the, the American Society of Civil Engineers grades our roads a D. Despite the fact, despite the fact that we have the highest gas taxes um, in the state, and um, you know, Bill, it's interesting. I, I think a lot of Californians are so busy just just trying to manage everyday lives that a lot of the data points we're talking about here, you know, they don't have time to really become informed about all that stuff. But you know, what really does make a difference, you know, when the electric bill comes in as it as it happened with Gray Davis, um, when gasoline bills come in, as they are now, when they hit a pothole in the road, um, you know, in our in our, uh, in our biweekly California on your mind column, you know, we often talk about, you know, what is it going to take for California voters to demand better, um, and it always surprises me to the extent that people that to the, to the extent that. Local politicians and those who uh, who are intimately associated with those politicians, such as teachers unions, are able to hide uh, so effectively. Um, I just keep thinking that the pandemic is revealing more of the state's weaknesses, um, not just housing, not just education, but really a lack of leadership. Um, in Sacramento. And, you know, as we're sitting here doing this podcast, I'm thinking, you know, I'll I'll throw this out to you because you know the politics much better than I do. You know, is there a, a, a sizable and number coalition in the state that's a strong Gavin supporter? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, white liberals would be a strong supporter for Newsom. African Americans would be strong supporters as well. Um, gay community would be uh, strong since he uh, was the mayor who started the um, the marriage debate in California. Uh, but the question is, how do you chip away at this? I So one theory I have, Lee, is that California is a state that really is driven by tipping points in politics. 
Um, a good example of a tipping point would be back in the 1990s with crime, where crime was embodied by these rather sensational crimes. Uh, Polly Class, who you, uh, you might remember, the young girl who was abducted uh, by this guy who had no business being out of prison, but the re revolving door system kept putting this guy on the street. And eventually he did something hideous. He kidnapped and uh, killed this girl. And so now you had a very tangible thing to wrap around the public's frustration with crime in California. Uh, Proposition 187 and immigration was a, a tipping point, a flashpoint as well. So I think as we look ahead to um, to uh, the California, the question Lee, is going to be if certain tipping points come in and and move the public. Um, education, I think, is kind of a slow moving animal in that regard. But I do think that there is a building frustration in a couple of regards. Number one, what did COVID do? COVID obviously affected different populations of California in different ways, but it really exposed one thing, which is the economic divide. If you are a well-to-do Californian, you survive COVID with your kids and their education. Why? Um, either A, they were in a private school, so their private school stayed open, didn't go through the, uh, the circus of the unions and the public schools, or you had the resources to do what wealthy parents here in Palo Alto did, which is they created so-called pods for their kids where they found teachers weren't working and, and slipped them some money and said, hey, come here and teach my kid. Meanwhile, you have uh, working class Californians, uh, Hispanics in particular, uh, for whom education is not just a ladder for their kids, Lee. It's also a form of daycare. They can't stay at home with their kids. And so I think maybe for them, this is kind of the first wake up call that, you know, education is not uh, fair to everyone in California, which then ties to issue number two, which is charter schools uh, in California. And you mentioned this early um, about uh, about charter schools and public unions and so forth. Uh, Jerry Brown was not friendly toward charter schools, but he was not hostile. This governor, on the other hand, was financed early by the California Teachers Association. They're at it again, and they expect things in return. Uh, Newsom cannot kill charter schools in California, but he can certainly make their life difficult in terms of caps, in terms of regulations, and so forth. And if I'm a Republican running in California, this is one of those quality life issues that I'm picking up and going with. The idea that the heart of the California dream has always been not just, you know, the, Pat Brown's dream of uh, free college education, the great UC system, uh, but also quality. K through 12. And, you know, Lee, you've written about this. Um, if you're an economic have not in California, unfortunately, that carries over not just from your own economics, your own finances, but also into the education their kid is receiving. So if I'm a Republican and try to gain a foothold in California, I'm picking up the affordable housing issue. I'm picking up the homeless issue. I'm picking up crime. But I'm also running with the education monopoly in California. Yeah, edu education is, is become an embarrassment. Um, California ranks 49th in the country in school reopenings. A big reason is because teachers unions are really recalcitrant on this point. And as a somewhat lame Democrat and someone who is, as you mentioned, Bill, really significantly financed by teachers unions, he can't, he can't play hardball with them. So the most he can do is try to cajole them and coddle them and then keep his fingers crossed that all goes back to normal over the rainbow, as you might say, yeah. come the middle of August. Um, he lost his temper with them back in April. He, um, he was sat in on a call and just got really furious and actually mouthed off to a reporter. And I think he got rebuked by the unions. And if you just, you know, at all times, parse the man's words, Lee, and what he says, he is hopeful. This fall. He is hopeful. Hopeful. Uh, hopeful. That, hopeful. Well, you talk about a modified, limited hangout. 
hopeful. <laughs> hopeful is the adjective. Hopeful is uh, is not really an adjective used by somebody who's a leader who who creates uh, who creates an environment that brings people together. Um, his inability to reopen California classrooms, and by the way, ironically, the um, it's been shown that the COVID virus is almost impossible to pass uh, in out-of-door settings in, 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 in sunshine periods. Um, we're better to reopen schools than California, and yet we're 49th. Um, what has the K through 12 school system been doing during COVID? Well, the United Teachers of Los Angeles and the Teachers Union of San Francisco, both have adopted resolutions um, against Israel and their current skirmish with Hamas. Uh, they're supporting the BDS movement, uh, boycott, uh, divest, and sanctions against Israel and standing um, in step with uh, their Palestinian friends. Um, and I just ask you, you know, Bill, is it appropriate or is it just me or is it completely appropriate for a public sector union, a union that's financed by our tax dollars to be taking political sides in uh, international geopolitics? Um, how does this make Jewish families feel? Um, and in those resolutions that were written by two of the largest school teachers unions in the country, Nowhere was it written that Hamas attacked Israel first. Um, again, not to take sides on this, but as a factual matter, Hamas attacked Israel by lobbing 36 missiles into, into Israel. And Hamas has been a known terrorist organization for nearly 40 years. Nowhere is it mentioned uh, that Hamas started this, nor that Israel is trying to protect itself from a terrorist organization. Right. But the unions, um, the unions in California, Lee, they have an agenda that unfortunately goes beyond schools. It's not about kids in the classroom. It's about just their worldview. You saw this before the pandemic came out in full force. Remember UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, Lee, they went out on strike during the middle of the school year. Now, there was a time back when Lee, you and I were school kids, uh, where teachers didn't do this. It was considered just anathema. You did not abandon your kids during the school year. If you had a problem, you settled it out of the school year, not during, but they walked. And what were their demands, Lee? They wanted, uh, let's see, what did they want? Let's see, they wanted they wanted Medicare for all. Uh, they wanted to defund the police and they wanted, um, what else were they wanted besides that? Uh, the, oh, they wanted a wealth tax in California as well. So, you know, defunding the police in your child's education, I'm not sure I see the nexus between the two, but they had this agenda they wanted to carry out. And I guess they feel omnipotent because they're teachers unions in California. But again, Lee, it's a question of maybe the flashpoint, Jen, when, when is enough enough? And that's why, again, I'm curious, getting back to the beginning of this conversation, what happens in this state come August the 15th? Because I think we're all expecting a return to normal. And I don't think normal is going to be what we once thought it was. And I'm just saying that anecdotally as somebody who's walking around Northern California and we don't have to wear a mask, but a lot of people are still wearing masks. And I think maybe it's force a habit for some people. Maybe some people are just nervous Nellies. They want to wear masks, but I think we're still have people wearing masks in society and people may be afraid to shake hands and be a bit of a germaphobes. But I think when we look at the way schools are instructed in California, Lee, I'm just not sure that come August the 15th, that, you know, that normal is going to be the old normal. I think there might be a new normal and I'm not sure how well that's going to sit with voters. No, it's, it's not going to be the old normal. Um, young kids, uh, the vaccine has not been approved for young kids. Um, 
the average school classroom in California now is heavily Hispanic. Um, the Hispanic population has not been widely vaccinated, despite the fact that an awful lot of vaccine has gone to Hispanic areas. In fact, I have friends who who live in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, um, who, who found it very difficult to get in to get vaccinated, um, but who found, you know, I had one friend who told me, hey, I went to Turlock. And uh, the day before I made my appointment and I, I was able to sign up at any time, literally I wanted. They have more vaccine than they know what to do with. So what are these teachers gonna say when August 15th comes around and the kids in the classroom have been vaccinated, they're living in homes where you know, more, perhaps more than, more, uh, more than less of their parents or grandparents have been vaccinated. Um, so yeah, that's going to be a big problem, I think, uh, I think for Newsom. Um, and, you know, just one last piece about, about, uh, about the education system. Um, I mean, earlier, a couple of months ago, the California Department of Education um, approved a fourth draft. It took years and four drafts to get a recommended curriculum for ethnic studies um, that continues to be based on this point that you made earlier about critical race theory. Um, and I think most parents are very, very worried about this. They're concerned, they're upset um, that a group of, I think maybe 18, 18 critical race theory professors, um, many at San Jose State or San Francisco State, that this handful of people who have a very, you know, a very specific agenda uh, were the ones creating this. And, you know, this is not playing out well. And you see this not just in California, but, but also more broadly in, uh, in the country. So, yeah, I don't, it's not looking all rosy for Gavin. And again, just coming back to this issue about leadership, um, you know, what, what, is Gavin, what is Gavin doing to lead? What is Gavin doing to bring people together and to create consensus? And I suspect this will be his downfall. If not this fall, then fall of 2022. You know, one thing which I'm curious about, Lee, and I know we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, um, but, you know, for all that we've run down California and to listeners, by the way, this podcast is not paid for by the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. And I think Lee and I actually, uh, we like this state very much and we kind of speak out of frustration. But, you know, Lee, there is a demand for California in this regard. You're UCLA. I think they get like 100,000 applications a year, if I'm not mistaken. It's just staggering how many people apply to that school. Uh, to get in. I was talking to a, a friend the other day whose uh, son got in, but it was a really long, frustrating process. Um, but there's a question right now, Lee, uh, and I'd be curious your thoughts about this, uh, about who goes to UCs in California, because I believe there's an effort now to pare back on the number of, um, of uh, admissions from out of state in California. Um, this is kind of curiously because at the same time, universities are pleading poverty in California. Um, if you cut back on out-of-state admissions, you're taking away another pot of revenue because a lot more to go to UC Berkeley or UCLA out-of-state than in. Uh, but yet there's kind of a sentiment that seems to keep it in California. No, Bill, that's right. For the last decade, there has been more of an emphasis within the UC system, in, including UCLA, to bring in out-of-state students. And you know the reason really is uh, they pay full freight. So they're paying the higher tuition, the higher fees. And there was pushback from this, from Californians who say, hey, you know what, I, I see all these people coming from Florida or from China or from Canada. Um, and my kid has a 4.3 GPA and he got perfect SATs and he couldn't get into UCLA. 
Um, so, yep, this is going to this is going to put pressure on the UC budget. Um, I'm 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 proud to be part of what I think is the best public university system in uh, in the country. But gosh, it has been it has been um, underinvested in, uh, and the investments are taking place in areas where I think that are paying relatively little in dividends, um, such as a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Um, you know, now every college now just has um, enormous amounts of money being spent on this stuff. Um, and when you look at, um, you know, the history of the University of California, um, I work in Bunch Hall, um, named after Ralph Bunch, an African-American who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, UCLA can take claim to Arthur Ashe, the great, uh, black tennis player, Jackie, Jackie. Robinson. Right. We have, um, the University of California has done so much to advance the, to advance the opportunities for great students, uh, irrespective of color. And um, I hope we continue to do that. I'd like to be, I'm always happy to be a part of that. Um, but, you know, UC is losing a lot of great faculty to other universities. Um, we have a very hard time competing for the best graduate students who are really sort of, you know, professors in training and spend a lot of time with the undergraduates. Um, we don't pay a stipend as much. Uh, so, you know, more, uh, more, uh, more headwinds, uh, more headwinds uh, are coming our way in terms of that. So, Jonathan, look at what Richard Nixon avoided by losing that governor's race in 1960. But this is also part of the problem. I mentioned Jonathan uh, worked at the Nixon Library in a past life. That's why I'm throwing that out there. But uh, uh, this is another challenge to California at all times. Uh, people want to revert to nostalgia in California, which is just kind of a silly conversation. It's similar to what goes to the national level. Boy, wouldn't it be great if we we're back in the 1950s? Well, you know, which part of the 1950s do you want? A simpler life or, you know, less medicine and, uh, you know, more complicated racial relations? and so forth. Uh, Richard Dixon ran in 1962, Jonathan, and he was looking at California. I don't think it was even 15 million people yet. There's a California open space and just kind of open promise, which, you know, Pat Brown used to full effect in terms of building universities and roads and water systems and so forth. Um, I'm not sure Richard Nixon want to be in charge of this 40 million people strong monstrosity that uh, with its $200, million, $200 billion government that Gavin Newsom presides over. Uh, no, right. It's it's uh, it's certainly the state has become much more complicated over the past uh, couple decades. In May, the governor revised his proposed 2021-22 budget to be 58 right. billion more than last year's. Uh, the governor uh, and legislature are running up against a July 1st deadline to enact a budget for the upcoming fiscal year. What what remains unfinished business? Well, um, there are a couple of things. Actually, before um, July 1st, which is the fiscal year begins July 1st in California, there's a June 15th deadline, Jonathan, which is you have to have a budget uh, framework in place by the 15th under the Constitution. That's the first thing they all rush to. And Lee, this is one of the things that uh, had the, um, the legislative analyst upset because Newsom comes out in May with this revise. And the revise had, I think, at least 100 new spending ideas in it. And that means that you are giving the legislature less than one monthly to look at all of these programs and weigh whether or not to spend them. And the way Sacramento works, they're not going to hold hearings and go through each and every measure. They're going to start passing them a bunch without basically looking at them. So Newsom is just kind of strong arming them. Um, were there a part? They're going to be a part on really how much money to put into education. Do you just do the Prop 98 minimum or do you go beyond that? 
And then I think Jonathan is just going to be kind of an agonized discussion about um, about who gets what in terms of individual measures. And then probably on top of that, how much money is going to be put in the reserve. I do think Newsom, to his credit, as much as we run him down uh, during this conversation, I do think he understands Proposition 2. And I think for political cover, at least since he's in a recall, he'll want to make sure that the reservoir looks strong. Now, the problem is it's never enough, it's never enough money to go around once you have a budget crisis. So I think he'll try to balk as much as he can. Um, Budgets, governors always have the upper hand in budget discussions. Why? Um, legislatures have a hard time overriding vetoes. And the governor also keep in mind something which every president of Washington would love to have. The governor has line item um, uh, veto authority. And so he could do what my old boss, Pete Wilson, would do. If a lawmaker really crossed him, he'd go into that budget and he would you know, circle the $50,000 for the water fountain in the park and out it would go. Just you know, plain punishment, simple. So that's what they're haggling over. But uh, the history of Sacramento is when there's more money to spend, budgets get solved really, really fast. Now, by the way, proponents of good government would point out, and this I think I pointed this out in a column as well, there was nothing stopping lawmakers from putting together kind of a placeholder budget, funding everything from the previous year, and then deciding after July 1st in through July and August what else to spend. But instead, I think you can see a rush to just push it all out the door right away. Why? The governor wants to go around for a couple of weeks and have a victory tour about all the money you're giving away in California. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I agree with you, Bill. Um, I worry that's the way this is going to be dealt with, and um, it'll be great PR for Gavin. Um, and if you look at to see where a lot of the big spending is going to be, it's in increasing access to the Cal State system, to community colleges, which sounds great on paper, but the reason that we already have so many kids going through the Cal State system, the community college system, and never finishing is because they simply are unprepared to succeed in those courses. So we're going to be spending millions and probably billions um, on trying to push kids into two-year college and four-year college when they simply don't have the capacity to do that because they've been failed at K through 12. Um, so I think it's going to, uh, so again, this, I think this is going to be a large monetary sinkhole. Sounds great. It makes great PR for Gavin. Uh, I don't think this is really going to move the needle. We really need to start much earlier at K through 12, where only, um, you know, again, uh, this is the last thing I'll say about education, but, um, you know, Gavin, uh, Belly, as you mentioned, um, strong support by black voters, by, by wealthy white liberals. Um, if you, you know, ironically, you look at um, educational performance outcomes uh, for black kids and Hispanic kids, about 15% are proficient in math. Um, and so uh, how are they going to be uh, ever be able to compete for the jobs of 2030? Um, they're not going to be able to. Uh, these are supposed to be the people that Gavin is representing, um, and they are being failed right and left. Yeah, if I can end this podcast on a uh, even less cheerful note, it would be this: um, as outraged as you might be by the amount of money being spent in California, uh, I wrote a column uh, a couple of weeks ago about the uh, Newsom COVID giveaway program. Like other governors, he's, he's trying to encourage people to get vaccinated by throwing money at them. But unlike other states, Newsom did not offer college education. Instead, he uh, offered a few people a shot at a million million and a half dollars. Uh, some people a shot at fifty thousand dollars, but uh, two million people were eligible for fifty dollars. 
uh, gift cards, which in inflationary California, 50 bucks doesn't get you very far at Whole Foods, in case you haven't noticed. And it's really just for a guy facing election. It's a very clever way to put pockets into potentially hundreds of thousands of voters. But uh, my point would be that if you get really exercised by the budget, um, don't, because there's something probably worse coming along, and that's bill signing, and that the legislature, once it's done with the budget, will then start enacting legislation. It'll go to the governor's desk, and I leave this, Lee, I guess this is why you and I can write about California every week. He'll get 1,000, 1,500 bills on his desk, and I think just the wokiness and virtual signaling out of it is just going to be dizzying. Oh, oh my goodness, yes, yes. Uh, and uh, Bill, you, you do you think is do you think his new moniker game uh, game show Gavin? Do you think it was worth it <laughs> to send out all those checks and now have his new uh, now have his new nickname? As long as they're still looking for a new host of Jeopardy and Pat Sajak can't do Wheel forever, so maybe maybe the news will go off to do Wheel. But uh, no, it's very funny. A final note here. So I have a couple of um, of, of, of people I know in, in the Assembly and State Senate who you know I look to for information and stuff like that. And each year I make the call and I say, do me a favor, just kind of keep your heads up for just kind of what you think is sort of the silliest, most obnoxious, stupidest bill, and I always get the same response: How stupid do you want? <laughs> Welcome to California. It's a limbo contest, but uh, anyway, gentlemen, I enjoyed the conversation. Always well, fun. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is Hoover Inst. That's H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is Bill Whalen CA. Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is or at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at Hoover.org and the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California in Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Lee Ohanian write every week. Again, this is John Lovardison, and sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back next week for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.